You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This is Doc G, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. Earn and Invest, the podcast, was never meant to be about me. My personal dream was not to teach anyone necessarily about personal finance. Rather, my goal was to interview some of the most interesting people and let their knowledge and experience teach us all. Hence, it's not surprising that my voice, my questions and commentary make up about 5% of each episode. It's the guest voice we all want to hear. Yet, it occurs to me that occasionally, once a year or so, you might want to know something about me and my motivations, beliefs, and even embarrassing moments. You might want to ask me anything. To help you do that, I've invited three fantastic community members here today to speak for you. Gwen Mers is one of my favorite people who I just so happen to have met through the Financial Independence Retire Early space. She is a fiery millennial, not only in the branding of her blog, but also in her personality. Gwen, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Doc. It is so fun to have you back on the show. Gwen was on episode number one of What's Up Next. Very first one talking about real estate because, of course, Gwen is a real estate maven. Yes, yes. I love me some real estate, which you you know so well. <laughs> Wally Miller is the powerhouse behind FinanciallyThriving.com, a financial coaching program designed to help high-achieving professionals like you who feel overwhelmed by the thought of budgeting, saving, and investing. She was also a guest on episode 261 of Earn and Invest. Wally, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> this is going to be a great episode, Doc G. I know. And I'm on the hotspot this time instead of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And last but certainly not least, Ken George is the CEO of Merit Standard Properties and is part of our Earn and Invest Facebook group at earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Kenny, it's nice to meet you here on the air. Same with you, Doc. I am so excited because you guys are the voice of our community. Before we jump into this Ask Me Anything extravaganza, I want to talk a moment about how you three got here. Gwen, let me start with you. How did you become a fiery millennial? What was your path to personal finance? Yeah, my parents raised me with strong financial principles. They taught me how to balance my checkbook back when you actually had to do it on the register and paper and uh, set up a budget and all about loans, but they didn't really teach me a whole lot about investing. So I was on a, a website that used to exist called StumbleUpon, and that one brought me to Mr. Money Mustache's blog. And so 
I read that and I was like, wow, this guy is, wow, this guy's amazing. He really knows what he's talking about. Kind of went off the, the fire deep end from there. Talk about an aptly named website, Stumble Upon. We just don't name them so well anymore, do we, Gwen? We don't. No. And it was the perfect website, too. You know, you put in your interests and then you just click the next button and it would serve you up a random page that had been tagged. Is that one of those interests? It was perfect. So, Wally, I'm interested in how you got here. Were you good with money growing up? I always was a little bit of a money nerd. So I would like watch those Susie Orman retirement specials on PBS, right? Even as a teenager and in my 20s. But for me, it was a clickbait article. I remember reading an article from Go Curry Cracker about how he and his partner, he and his wife retired in their 40s or 30s. And I remember sharing it with my fiance at the time. And I'm like, this is fascinating, right? Like, how do people do this? And I kind of put it in my back pocket until I had a really bad day at work. I went, found that email I sent and spent an entire weekend diving into everything there was about this financial independence, retire early movement. So that was sort of my entrance into FIRE. And it was a far cry from Susie Orman, I imagine. She's not necessarily on the fire bandwagon. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was one of those things where I always was interested in numbers. And in my mind, I thought I was good with money. I didn't have credit card debt. I tried to spend within my means. But the component that I was missing was that investing part. I was doing pretty well with earning. I was doing okay with saving but I had no idea what it meant to invest. And Ken, let's talk about your background. You're involved in something that lots of personal finance, financial independence people are involved in, which is real estate. But then you're also involved in something which not many people are, which is multi-level marketing. First, let's talk about real estate. How did you get involved in it? So that's a crazy thing. Whenever I met my wife at 15 in high school, we had our first son at 17. So kind of like had to move out of the house as soon as we graduated high school. So from there, we bought our first house and then quickly decided, you know, we need a bigger house, put that one on a rent to own to someone else, ended up renting it to them for 10 years. They had like a couple payments left and just left the place trashed and it was going to be theirs. So we basically got the house back and had to start all over again. Meanwhile, in that, I was reading books on how to basically do real real estate. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, of course, was one of the big ones. And then I was hooked since then. And give us a minute summary of what you do with multi-level marketing. You work with a company called Amzil. This is something that most people really feel is questionable that you can make a profit. And yet you've done really well. Just give us a small thumb sketch of what you do. So yes, I am an AMS oil dealer. We sell oil, lubes, and greases. So it's a car guy thing. I have ADHD, so I can't just do one thing. <laughs> so the AMS oil business plan is completely different than any other MLM that I've seen because we're able to sell to businesses, retail, and commercial. So that's how I've made a decent portion of my money. And since I don't have any retirement benefits with that, that's why I buy the rental properties. You know, So I have investments going for me. And, you know, I'm making some decent cash flow off of this business that I never thought I would, and no one ever thought I would either. But it's one of those things where everyone that tells me I can't do it, 
then I have to go out and do it. Mark this here. You probably will hear Ken again because I'm excited to have an MLM conversation and I've had trouble finding enough people to talk about. So that might be an earn and invest episode in the future. Gwen, I've been putting it off, but I can do it no longer. I feel like we have to get to the bulk of the show. Let's start with you, Gwen Mers. Ask me anything. Okay. All right. So I know that you uh, have done your fair share of travels in the world. So where is your favorite place that you've ever been in the world and why? So I'm actually embarrassed because this is going to sound a little cheesy. I've done some traveling. I am not as big of a traveler as a lot of people in the personal finance and especially financial independence space. So, you know, I've been to Europe, but I've never been to Asia. I've certainly been to Central and South America. Believe it or not, one of my favorite places to go, and it's going to sound corny, is we go or have gone many years with my whole family to Playa del Carmen, Mexico. And it's not because it's such an amazing historic place, because obviously there's some cool things about Mexico, but it, there, there are some more glamorous places to go. But it's the place where I went with my kids every year, and I can chart their growing up by these different trips to Mexico. In fact, often we went to the same resort, and it's just this oasis that we often go to during spring break when it's still cold in Chicago, where we get a week of just my wife, the kids and I, and there are no distractions and there warm weather and good food. And some of my happiest times have been there. So if you were to ask me my favorite travels, it's that yearly, what was a yearly trip before COVID to Playa del Carmen, uh, where we just got to be together as a family. Okay, well, I didn't expect to cry during this episode, but yet here I am tearing up over this. Well, you know, it is me. So I've been told (laughs) that occasionally I evoke tears when I talk about things, but I am embarrassed by the fact that I haven't done more extensive travel. And we're to the point where we were planning on doing a lot more travel and then COVID hit. And my kids are also at that age. My son is now a junior in high school and my daughter is an eighth grader. So it's hard to do the kind of slow travel that I think a lot of us dream of, especially when we're thinking about having enough money to be able to step away from work and do these kind of things. And it's kind of difficult with children at these ages. As much as we don't want to see our children grow up, we're both excited, my wife and I, to see my daughter get through high school and off to college so that we can then go off on some adventures and slow travel, hopefully throughout Europe and Asia are definitely our plans. There's much more in the future, but I don't think I'll ever be someone who travels 24 seven. I like my routines and I like home and I like working. Like I like doing this podcast. I like having some of the ease of doing it from home and exercising and things like that. Doc, I just got to ask, what's the routine look like for you per day? So my routine over the last few years obviously has changed. My routine used to be I woke up, went to my physician practice, saw patients all day, worked really hard, came home, ate dinner, and collapsed. Over the last few years, I've had the luxury of pulling back from medicine and now spend a lot of my time doing things I like to do. So on a typical day, I will wake up about 4.45 or 5. I get up, I exercise, I eat. And then the rest of the day is a mix of creative stuff. I usually try to read at least an hour or two a day. 
And some of that is for the podcast. So if I'm having people on the show, I'm reading their books, et cetera. But I love reading sci-fi fantasy stuff. In fact, I read so much that I forget the author's names because I go through them so fast. Like I'll try to find an author who has a 15 or 20 book series. And now because of COVID, I'm getting a lot of it on my phone through the library apps. And I will just read through one book, then the next, then the next, then the next. Podcasting takes up anywhere from three to five hours a day, depending, you know, I like to record on Mondays and Fridays, but often I'm recording other days. I work on Stacking Benjamins, Joe Salcihai and OG's podcast. And so we have creative meetings twice a week where we spend an hour discussing scripts for the show, as well as we have an all hands on deck meeting, usually every Tuesday. And I try to exercise multiple times a day. So usually I'll do some kind of aerobic activity two to three times a day, 30 to 45 minutes. My wife and I like to go on long walks, especially in the afternoon, especially when it's not as cold as it is in Chicago right now. The interesting thing about scaling back at work. So I still do some work activity. I have my hospice work I do on Wednesdays, and it's usually four to five hours. And it's really the only day that I have to concertedly be in one place doing one thing. So I answer pages and texts all day long, Monday through Friday, but only on Wednesdays do I actually have to be in meetings. So the interesting thing about this lifestyle is as I pulled back from work, I really don't see life as a Monday through Friday or a nine to five thing. So I'm just as likely to be doing some work on a blog or a podcast at 7 p.m. at night on a Friday or Saturday or Sunday as I am to be doing it in the middle of the weekday. So it's really blurred for me. Like I don't get Sunday anxiety because my weeks and my weekends tend to meld together and even days and nights. Uh, Sometimes I put things off to do at nighttime while I'm watching TV. I do a lot more of the clerical work, whereas more of the creative work I like to do in the morning. So it's a hodgepodge. I probably can spend about 20 to 30 hours a week on the podcast and about 10 hours a week on hospice stuff. And then the rest is exercise and reading and fun stuff and hanging out with the kids, you know, running the kids back and forth. My daughter just started Krav Maga. So I'm driving her three days a week there at nighttime. And I wait for her while she, while she practices. So that's what a typical day looks like. It's kind of atypical. Like I have my routines, but, but otherwise it can vary depending on the day and the week. Wally, it is your turn. Ask me anything. Yeah. Well, speaking of podcasts, obviously there's been some changes from when this podcast had originally started, but I would like to know what have you discovered after 250 plus episodes of podcasts about yourself and about podcasting? I've discovered a few things. One about myself is that I'm a perfectionist and I don't need to be. So especially when I first started podcasting, I wanted everything to sound just so and just right and just perfect. And I used to edit the heck out of myself. Like if I noticed I was saying the same word over and over again, or if I was pausing too much, or if I was doing too many ums or ahs, I'm doing a lot less of that now. I've actually realized over time that being authentic and having your voice be authentic, which often isn't perfect. Like how often do we say things wrong or do we pause a little too long or get mixed up, mixed up in what we're saying? I now tend to leave that stuff in the podcast, uh, which I used to not. So that's a big thing I learned about myself. I also learned that 
I still get performance anxiety. So I remember that first podcast, which Gwen was in, there was a moment while we were in the midst of starting that podcast and I had a panic attack almost inside. Like I had three people on panelists who I highly respected. And I'm like, what if I make a fool of myself? What if I sound so horrible? What if I do a bad job? And then I just dove in and that's kind of the thing about it. But even now, 270 something episode later, I still get a little nervous the moment I sit in front of the microphone. It still causes butterflies. I've learned to change the way I think about that. Someone taught me this about public speaking. They said, if you're going up to give a a talk in front of an audience, and if you're not getting butterflies, then you're probably not excited about the talk. And it probably won't be that good. I mean, you should be psyched and gigged up and ready. So now I tend to think of it as a really good thing. When I get that little anxiety that pit my stomach before it's time to go on, I think of that as something that's beneficial and it means I still love what I'm doing. Well, if it's any consolation, you sounded fantastic in our first episode and I could not tell at all. It's funny because again, what was going on internally was not necessarily what was happening externally. The one lucky part about that first episode, it was all people I really felt very friendly with people who I felt already knew me and accepted me and liked me. And so if you're going to do a venture like this, don't go for like the really big interview of someone who scares you or you don't know, or someone who's like so unreachable and you happen to get them. You don't want that to be your first one. I was lucky. Most people say that if you go back and listen to their podcast, their first 10 or 20 or even a hundred episodes suck. I really don't feel like we had that same learning curve. Like I feel like I've gotten better over time but I'm still pretty proud of those first bunch of episodes. And again, I, I partially say the, the reason is, is, you know, we got really good, solid, awesome people to be on those episodes. So they had really cool, important things to say. All Paul and I had to do was step back out of the way so that we didn't mess it up too much. So that was a big part of it. Gwen, did you have another question? I do actually. Okay. So speaking of podcasts and guests, Except for me, of course, because I know that obviously I'm your favorite guest, so you can't answer that one because it's not fair to everybody else. So besides me, who has been the favorite guest that you've had on the podcast so far? See, now that's an unfair question (laughs) because I I don't honestly want to play favorites. I have to say some of my favorite episodes, some of my favorite episodes have been episodes either of people who are just really good friends, because that's a lot of fun, or topics of conversation that are important to me that I feel are difficult. So sometimes my favorite episodes are probably not other people's favorite episodes. So I've mentioned this many times, but in the first run of episodes, I think it was in the first 50, we did a bunch of episodes about what it was like to be financially independent and quote unquote other whether that meant African-American or female or an immigrant, or the point was, what did it feel like to be financially independent and not be your typical white male? And so I loved that series of episodes because I just felt like they were so important. And it was so important for my evolution as a person to start looking outside of my own peer group that looked and sounded exactly like me. 
So to me, those episodes really found felt groundbreaking. I don't know if they're groundbreaking for everyone else, but they certainly were for me and the way I looked at the world. I also have to say there are a few episodes that I do about once a year with different podcasters that I love. So I usually do an episode with the guys from Millionaires Unveiled once a year. And I just always have fun because I feel like we're shop talking or I do an episode probably once a year with the How to Money guys. And again, those are just really fun episodes because I feel like there's this connection because we're all kind of doing the same thing. And so there's an understanding of what it feels like to be producing this show on a regular basis and, and to really want it to come out well and and sound good. Ken, you're up. All right, Jordan. I'm going to go for a good one here, I think. In the episode with Mark and Andrew, your brothers, you seem where you all seem successful, which congratulations on that. Uh, you guys did mention you didn't have to worry about uh, money in your 20s since college was paid for and it let you discover yourselves. Do you think having money for college was the most important part to make you guys, to make you and your brothers successful where you are today? Or was it the chance to have that ability of finding yourselves and what you really wanted to do and uh, kind of find your passions? I think it was both. So there is no question that a huge hindrance to financial success is college debt. And if you come out of college with a huge amount of debt, it is going to hamper your ability to save and compound, right? Because if you can just save enough money between 20 and 30 and get it into assets like stocks and bonds that then grow over time, by the time you're in your 30s and 40s, you're going to do really well. So me and my siblings were freed of that issue. Now that came at a cost, as you guys have heard me talk about, what paid for our college educations was my father's life insurance policy. So my father died when I was eight. He had a $200,000 life insurance policy. My mom invested it aggressively and that paid for all of our educations as well as graduate educations and my medical school. So I think that is, it plays a big part there are two or three other things that that played a big role. One is we grew up middle class, right? So already we had some luxury there. We had the luxury of thinking about how to make a living. We had the chance to try and fail, right? If you grew up really poor, I think a lot of times you feel like I don't have space to fail. I don't have money to fail. I can't go to two years of college and then decide it's not for me and then pay off those two years of debt. So we had a little bit of that room. And then we also had great financial modeling. My mom and my stepdad just did the right things with money. They didn't necessarily say, this is how you manage money, but they owned real estate. They started businesses. They invested. They saved a lot more than they spent. So I think when you put those all together, it created an atmosphere no question of privilege. I mean, we grew up with a lot of stuff other people don't have, but it gave us the space and time to really think about who we wanted to be, what we wanted to do with our lives, and and most importantly, what role money plays in our goals and aspirations. Like when you don't have money, right? When you have nothing, all you can think about is getting enough money. But when you grow up with enough money to survive, you can start thinking about, well, what do I really want in life? What's going to fulfill me? What's going to make me feel good? 
I grew up in a very lucky situation. The, the, the bad thing that happened was my father died. The good thing that happened is I grew up with pretty much everything else I could possibly ever want or need, both economically and emotionally. And so, you know, you'll never hear me go on a podcast and say I had it so rough as a kid because I didn't. I mean, it's unsurprising that I'm in a good financial place today based on where I came from. And not everyone has that privilege. You've talked about sort of taking a little bit of shift here, but you've talked about the amount of time you spend reading and obviously writing. You're a beautiful writer and you have this book coming out. And I wondered what were some of the, I don't know, the accountability strategies you used in order to make sure you get this book written? Interestingly enough, the actual writing was not as hard for me as the emotional journey in writing the book. And the reason why I say this is I've definitely had a mental block on traditionally publishing. It has been something that's been part of my bucket list since I was a little kid. I self-published a few books, but I had a lot of limiting beliefs about my ability to write a full-length manuscript and get it published traditionally. So the biggest accountability portion for me was not the writing itself, but emotionally sticking with it and saying, this is going to get hard. You may not feel good about this process, but this is something you deeply want inside. You need to push through it. So a big part of my accountability, believe it or not, uh, was Grant Sabatier. So Grant and I are friends. He's very familiar with a lot of my writing. We just chat and have for years. And he came to me and he said, look, you have a book in you. This juxtaposition of what you do in hospice and what you've learned about money is unique. You need to write this book. And he not only gave me the encouragement, but also said, look, I've done book proposals. I've worked with publishers. I will help you write your book proposal. I'll introduce you to my agent. I'll help you through this process. So he actually ended up being a good deal of accountability in the beginning. After I got a publisher, pretty much my agent and my managing editor have been really good with accountability. So I've been, the way I, when I wrote the book is I would write a chapter or two, and then I would send it to each of them to edit. And then they would send it back to me and I would clean it up. And so we set a schedule of when I would send each chapter all the way through to the end of the book and the conclusion. And so that also helped me be accountable, but the writing part wasn't hard for me. There are many parts of this book I had written in various places already. So it wasn't hard for me to get the information down The hard part was to write it, not get frustrated when I realized that it wasn't good yet, to take people's criticism, to rewrite it, rearrange it, to fix it, to clean it. I've written this manuscript probably three times. Originally, I wrote it over 20 days on a vacation. And that first manuscript I then sent to my agent. And from there... And then I also sent it to Grant and then I totally rearranged it and rewrote it. And then finally, when I started handing it into the publisher was the third rewrite. So that's been the hard part is, is pretty much 
the emotional endurance to hang through a very frustrating process. Because writing a book is frustrating. It's always frustrating when you're trying to say what is important and means something to you, and you're trying to say it in a clean and crisp way. So right now, my manuscript is 60,000 words. It's a lot of words, and that's a lot of it's a lot of land to fill and to do it eloquently. And in a lot of our minds, we try to do it quote unquote perfectly. That's where I struggled. And I think that's where a lot of people struggle. Julian and Kirsten Saunders are kind of on that same pathway. They're publishing a little bit earlier than me in their book, Cashing Out. And we've commiserated on this idea because I think it's just a frustrating process. I don't know if any of you, Ken or Gwen, have ever tried writing a book but it takes a certain amount of stamina. I do a lot of trying to, well, writing all my ads and things like that for my businesses. It's kind of like crazy because I do all the marketing, you know, even do the stuff that we're sticking on the, the billboards at the local grocery store, you know? So we do all that sort of stuff because you never know where you're going to find your next real estate deal, deal or find, you know, someone that needs an oil change. It's a little bit better than what they typically use now. So I know as a marketer, just trying to get things from your head to paper is definitely hard. Yeah, no, I have this thing called RSD, which is rejection sensitivity dysphoria. I don't handle rejection very well at all, which is exactly what writing a book is over and over and over, you know, being told, no, this isn't good enough. Go back and rewrite it. And I would say, well, that's not good enough. Fine. I'm just not going to write the whole thing then, you know, and just like we'd give up. So I don't think book writing is in my future. For sure. (laughs) You definitely have to let go of some of the ego. What's helped me is I truly want this book to be incredible and fantastic. So I flipped the script a little bit and said, oh, you're telling me I can do this better. Let's make this the best product we can. So I've gone to my agent. I've gone to the editor. I said, look, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Tell me how we together can make this the best manuscript possible. And so that's that's how I've been really trying to look at it is how can I use my agent and my editor and the publisher as resources to make what I already have better. And I think if you look at it in that light, it gets a little easier. Tim Ferriss has a great podcast and he talks a lot about getting through that and actually bringing everything from like so big and actually reducing things to less words. And that's the hardest part that he has is making it smaller in size, like densing things down. So if you can say it with less words, it's actually more impactful than what it is having something huge. So that's the hardest thing I have is trying to find out, you know, how can I make this smaller, simpler, and easier to market without one of those cheesy taglines that you see everywhere, you know? So I don't know if following anything on Tim Ferriss, he has some really great stuff on where he interviews people about that, a couple publishers, and they have some really cool stuff on there that they talk about. We are talking to Gwen Mers, Ken George, and Wally Miller. This is an Ask Me Anything episode. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. 
Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying the Earn and Invest podcast, there are a few other ways in which you can interact with our community. The first is our Facebook group. This is the place where we discuss all our episodes of personal finance, today's headlines. Just go to EarnAndInvest.com slash Facebook. Again, that's EarnAndInvest.com slash Facebook. While you're there, you can also go to earnandinvest.com. That is my website where you can find all of our old episodes, some blog posts, as well as video content. We'd love to see you there. You can join our newsletter. Also, my new website, jordangrummet.com, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com, is now live. And there you can go to find out everything about the book launch, which is scheduled for August 2022, my book, Taking Stock, is about the confluence of my knowledge as a personal finance podcaster as well as end of life as a hospice doctor. I talk about the stories, what I've learned from taking care of people as they've near death and what that has taught them about money and happiness. Check us out at any of these places, and I'd love to see you become part of our community. Now back to the show. We are back in this Ask Me Anything episode with Wally Miller, Gwen Mers, and Ken George. While we are talking about the book, Ken, you had a question? Yeah, so basically it sounds like you're doing really well with this book and you know, with the podcast and how you bring us in. You you really have a knack for language and how you phrase things. So do you find it hard making this book that hopefully all of us get to enjoy here soon, how to structure it and leave out some details, make a couple things uh, ambiguous, and then touch on the things that are super important uh, to you, to others, and what you think readers will enjoy? You know, that's a great question. And and part of the reason is, is there is a rhythm to writing. And certainly I am, I'm a little bit of a musical person. I grew up kind of in the eighties and nineties and, and walked around continuously with rap music going through my head. So there's a certain lyricism to the way I express myself. If you've ever seen me do a public speech, or if you used to read a lot of my blog posts And the rhythm of writing differs depending on what you're writing. So I'm used to writing blog posts. I've been writing blogs since 2004, 2005. And the rhythm of a 500 or a thousand word blog post is so much different than the rhythm of a full length manuscript. And so I had to think a lot about how I structured my stories along with my personal information 
along with the financial information and how to structure that all correctly so that it all flowed smoothly. And yes, unlike a blog post where you got a thousand words to get everything out, get it out quickly, there's a lot more nuance in a book where you can bring up aspects of a story or a subject, touch on them, and then weave back into them later when it makes more sense. That was certainly something I struggled with when I did my first book proposal. I wrote it out. I got an agent. My agent and I felt like my platform wasn't big enough that it was an automatic sell to the publishers. So we actually hired in an editor to revise my book proposal. And she was fabulous. She took a lot of, she read through my whole first manuscript, took a lot of my stories and helped me organize them and structure them in a way that was just so much more appealing than the way I did it naturally. And I have to say that that was probably a crash course in book writing that I would have never been able to get this far without. Her name is Sarah Renone, and she she used to be a consultant. She now, I think, has gone back to work for a company. Um, but she was spectacular in helping me take my ideas and structure them and organize them correctly. So I worked with her for a good month. And although she wasn't there for the writing of the full manuscript, we worked on not only the book proposal, but some outlines of where I wanted to go and how. And that was incredibly helpful. I must ask, what was your top five most placed songs in 2021? Like after hearing what you just said about what you pumped in your headphones, I'm like really curious what type of music you uh, listen to the most. So, you know, funny enough, what I listen to now is not what I used to listen to because I really end up listening to what my kids listen to. So my son and daughter are teenagers. And so I really end up listening to what they listen to. My son is obsessed with glass animals. They have an album called Dreamland out and it is fantastic. I can listen to this all day long. Great beats, great lyrics. The actual album has an arc and a storyline. So I love that. Interestingly enough, my daughter loves K-pop. And so her favorite thing now is for me to drive her to Krav Maga because I'm the only one in the family who will listen to her play K-pop in the car. So so I've been listening to a mix of kind of alternative rock and K-pop has been my most recent playlist, I would say. I would say of the last year, you know, everything has been crazy in COVID because we've probably been, we've all been home a lot more. So there's been a lot more music playing. And of course I still listen to podcasts. So, you know, that darn stacking Benjamins has three episodes a week. So just to keep up with that, and they're each like an hour to an hour and a half. So just to keep up with that, I have plenty of plenty to listen to. Go ahead, Gwen. It is your turn to ask me anything. So you and I have shared more than a few meals together over the years that we've known each other. So my question for you is, what is your favorite food? What is my favorite food? So we've been eating a huge amount of Korean lately. We don't like, like I found, I don't tend to like American fare and I don't tend to like French restaurants or Italian or expensive restaurants. We tend to like dive location specific cuisine, like Korean, 
Thai. My wife's Iranian, so we eat a lot of Persian. I love anything dumplings, to tell you the truth. So on the Asian theme, any kind of stuffed dumpling, anything doughy or bready, I can eat forever. But I also have an incredibly sweet tooth. So any of those things too. I have to admit though, I gained a lot of weight during COVID. So I, I've always battled weight a little bit. I'm a pretty thin person, but I grew up where food was like what I used to soothe myself. So I've always had food issues. So, you know, about six or seven years ago, I lost about 25, 30 pounds and I mostly kept it off till COVID and I've gained about 20 more back. But I'll tell you, most of that gain, I believe actually was related to writing a book and not to COVID because I think my stress and emotional levels of, of dealing again with this very emotional process of something that I had very limiting beliefs about had me go back to thinking of food as something I used to soothe myself. So I'm back on the wagon. I've lost about 10 of it back and, and, and I'm a pretty thin person. So most people look at me and say, oh, you're so thin, but I know what weight feels good. And so kind of there, but I, I like food. I like eating. I, it, it takes a lot of work for me not to eat everything in front of my face. Yeah. He's like, oh, don't worry. I don't like American food too much, but I have watched this man destroy <laughs> an entire plate of chicken and waffles. So don't take that too seriously. That's American food. I hadn't eaten chicken and waffles ever. And I've been hearing about it on like the food channel forever. So when we were at the economy conference, we were in Cincinnati and we were getting lunch and I saw chicken and waffles and I'm like, I'm getting that. But yes, I will destroy whatever's in front of me. So the key is not to put much food in front of me. And that, that keeps me from doing that. Can Europe ask me anything? All right, Jordan, here's a goofy one for you. Now, I, I was picturing that you were completely out of the medical field. I didn't know that you were still dabbling in a lot of it. But my big question is, listening to the podcast, it seems like you suffered burnout. And what did that burnout in the medical field look like for you? And is it relatable to the stress the medical staff is suffering today? I mean, with COVID and everything, it's I know my wife's a nurse and she's just like, um, not doing well with everything that's going on. Now she's a NICU nurse, so she doesn't see everything that the frontliners do, but they have COVID positive babies and everything going on now. And it's kind of like, you know, how, how did you deal? Was the podcast your way of dealing or your investments, or did you kind of like sneak away from everything or how did it work? How did it work for you? And how did it look for you? So burnout was difficult for me. I grew up thinking that being a doctor was the only thing I was ever meant to be. My father was a doctor. He died when I was young. I quickly felt like I could fill his space. And so I joyously rushed through college and medical school, feeling like this was exactly where I was supposed to be. I started to hit burnout in residency. I've told the story before. There was a night in the ICU. I was a second year resident. I was the only one there. I had a patient die on me unexpectedly. His family came at two in the morning. I had to sit with them and tell them that their loved one died and explain it to them and watch them grieve and mourn. And then they left. And after they left a few hours later, after I'd been up all night and I was starting to work the next morning, because we would work 30 to 36 hours in a row, I started getting phone calls from the person who died, their, his daughters, he had three daughters. And the people who had come in the night before were his new family. No one had even told his daughters that he was in the hospital. 
and they were out of town. So I had to tell these three women and they were kind of estranged from each other too. It was a very distant family. So I had to tell these women on the phone separately that their father died. And it was just such a stunning experience of grief. And it felt so horrible. And of course, you know, I felt responsible. I mean, I was this doctor in training. It happened on my shift. It happened unexpectedly. And that was like the beginning of what I eventually would call my burnout journey. I got really good at building these walls to emotionally protect myself from the scary, hard stuff that I had to deal with on a regular basis. I mean, patients died all the time. We did the best we could. It was difficult and sad. And I was exhausted after working hours and hours on end. And it's a very confrontational system. Like you learn how to really fight medicine because you're always fighting. You're fighting your patient's families because they're angry at you or they think you should be doing something that you're not doing. You're fighting your fellow doctors because it's three in the morning and your patient's dying and they need an emergency CAT scan and the attending radiologist doesn't want to come in because they're sleeping at home. You are continuously fighting and dealing with stress. So what happened to me is I became a fairly cold person. I had built these walls. I had trapped all the bad things out, but then I had also kept all the bad things in because I wasn't letting them out. And so I realized over time that I had become a person that I didn't want to be. And so when I started practicing medicine, I still loved the actual academic part of seeing a person who had a medical problem and trying to fix it. But all the administrative stuff, all the late nights and all the difficult things started to weigh on me. I have pretty much think it was the birth of my son that, that woke me up a little bit. Because when my son was born and I held him in my arms in the delivery room, I realized that I can't go on like this. Like I'm going to have children. I have to learn how to love them and be open with them. I have to learn how not to be cold. And so that started the process of me relearning my emotions. And I started to not be so afraid of being hurt by what I was seeing in the world and started to accept it more. But the price was that I also didn't love medicine as much anymore. Like I saw what it had done to me and it didn't feel good. And so I started looking for ways out of medicine, probably in my mid to early thirties. And that's when I started doubling down on side hustles and investing and buying real estate. I did all these things to emotionally create a situation where I could leave medicine when I was ready but I had none of the vocabulary or understanding what enough really looked like, both financially as well as emotionally. I eventually learned the financial part when Jim Dolly sent me his book, The White Coat Investor, to write about it from my medical blog because I was writing about medicine at the time. And when I got that book, I learned pretty much everything I needed to know about personal finance, financial independence. I realized I probably had enough money to stop working at that moment. That caused lots of depression and anxiety because then I finally realized, okay, I can leave medicine, this thing that's burning me out, this thing that doesn't feel like me anymore. But I also had no idea what did feel like me. And so that at that point is when I started slowly drawing back from medicine. I didn't do it all at once. I just started to get rid of the things I liked the least. So my private practice was taxing. So I kind of subtracted that out of my life and did nursing homework and hospice work and some side hustles. Side hustles. 
the nursing homework, I was starting to get calls on the nights and weekends, and that was a problem. So I eventually subtracted that out. What I was left with was the one thing that I truly loved about medicine, which was hospice work. There's always a simple question I ask people about your work. What part of your work would you do if no one was paying you? If they said, sorry, we have no funds, is there any part of your work you would still do? So for me, that was the hospice work. So I knew that that was something I wanted to hold on to. And that's why I didn't leave medicine completely. I financially could have, but it was the one thing I knew that still added to my sense of purpose and to my identity. Now, the hard part is as I was subtracting those things, I had to then start asking the really tough questions. Who am I? What is my purpose? What do I identify with? Who are the kind of people I want to spend my time with? I dove into personal finance. And what I really came to is I love having deep conversations with people. Like I love interviewing people. I like doing public speaking. I like podcasting. So I was able to slowly transition to making these things more a center of my purpose and identity. And thankfully, that naturally led to community. So meeting people like Gwen, who I consider just a lovely person and one of my best friends, I would have never met her unless I, A, had gotten tired of medicine, B, discovered my interest in communication and personal finance, and C, then eventually built enough courage up to go to a Camp Fi meeting where I met her in person. So like, it's been an evolution for me and burnout definitely led me to where I am today. But just as hard as dealing with the burnout was actually trying to figure out who I am and what's important to me. And to me, that's been a much more exciting part of the journey, but also emotionally fraught. Because it's no fun to look at yourself and say, I'm going to stop identifying myself by this thing I do, but I have no clue then who I am or what's important about me. I mean, it kind of makes you understand why people stay at work. Like the golden handcuffs and the one more year syndrome makes sense because it's kind of emotionally fraught to step away from work and say, okay, I no longer identify as this. What do I identify as? That's a big question. And I think, I bet, Wally, that you might have faced some of that too, as you started thinking more about personal finance and started saying, well, what am I doing with my life, with my work life? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, one of the things that I found myself struggling with just this week was the drawdown. Like this whole accumulation has been easy peasy, right? But I... I was like, wait, I have to sell. <laughs> like it just like it was like that moment. Like, of course I knew that, but I didn't. And sort of thinking about that pause, right? And I think for me, when I I knew what I wanted was the time freedom and and that work optional lifestyle. And so once I had that and I found that aside from corporate, I enjoyed speaking with people about personal finance and also helping them discover their own journey. And I was like, is there a way that I could help people do this who might need that accountability, right? That's where the money coaching came in. But and then on that other side, it was like that drawdown, <laughs> that drawdown piece is it's really huge. I feel like it needs to be talked about more about uh, sort of the psychology of that for sure. Yeah, we don't, we don't talk about it, but one of the ways in which we identify ourselves as accumulators, like mm -hmm. part of my identity, part of the hard thing about walking away from medicine is 
I was a guy who made a lot of money. I found a way to use my practice. I did concierge medicine. I did a bunch of side hustles. I was a high money earner. And part of that changing my life was walking away from that identity and saying, okay, I'm no longer going to be even making the most in the household, but I might actually have to sell some assets. That's a, that's a difficult thing to do. It's emotionally easy for us to say, if you're defining yourself by money, then there's really not much there, right? Money is supposed to be a tool to get us to be able to do the things we want to do. It's not supposed to be the goal unto itself. It's easy to say that. It's a little harder to live it. And I think we all get used to defining ourselves by our money goals as opposed to using our money goals to better define ourselves by our real life personal goals. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's this because no one would ever agree to that. No one would ever say, yes, that's how I identify. But when you get to the root of it, it's just like, well, then why, why the struggle? (laughs) And so it's there, there's like this reflection that's staring back at you that you don't really recognize. So Gwen, we could go on like this forever, but unfortunately there is a limit. I'm going to give you the last go. Ask me anything, Gwen Mers. What are you looking forward to in 2022? There is so much I'm looking forward to. A, first and foremost, I love going to every event I can. So we'll see what happens with COVID. But every campfire, every FinCon, every economy, I just feel so rejuvenated by doing those things. So, So that's first and foremost. Second, I hate to say it, but I look forward to making more podcast episodes. I mean... The ability to have these conversations, to invite people that I care about or that impress me or that have a topic that I'm interested in, being able to invite them onto my show and talk to them about it is amazing. And of course, last but not least, I'm excited about the book release. Taking Stock will come out in August of 2022. I would love again to say that I'm confident that it's going to be perfect and everything is going to go great. But I do also have some anxiety about that. I, you know, I've never done a book launch. I so badly want people to experience this book because I think there's a lot good that's good there. But, you know, I'm also worried that people won't like it, that it won't be good enough, that that people won't enjoy it. So it's 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 mixed feelings. But again, I don't know if I didn't have these feelings then it probably doesn't mean that much to me. And this means a lot to me. So I think 2022 is going to be a really exciting year. And I'm excited to share it with everybody, both on the podcast and in this community in general. I think there's a lot more to see, do, and learn. And that's exactly what I want to do here. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you all what is up next in your lives and where people can find you if they want to learn more. Ken, let's start with you. What's up for you in 2022 and where can people find you? All right. So I actually just went to GoDaddy today and bought another domain name. So I made this one because as you can tell, I'm into being an entrepreneur, but I think that's an overplayed statement. So I I think I'm an ADHD dreamer. So I bought ADHDdreamers.com. I will forward that to probably just a Facebook page where we can connect. 
So I think that's going to be my next thing is doing that. As far as business, I want to grow and I want to probably buy 10 or 20 more houses this year. We do only rentals. So that's kind of what I want to focus on and try and keep my MLM business going. I got another car show coming up in Pittsburgh. So I'm going to be doing that the 21st to the 23rd of uh, January. So I'm excited to do that. But really, I, I'm I'm kind of excited to learn more about you and some of your podcasting that you've been doing so much of. I listen to almost every episode, but as listening to so many of them, you know, it's in one ear and out the other. So I'm going to have to start focusing a little bit more on what I'm listening to. As far as that, I want to try and invest a lot more and uh, get to a better spot in my life, a little bit more mentally and physically, you know, just try and go after some goals put them out there as big goals and achieve them. And I think that's going to help me and my family kind of get to where we want to be. Wally, what is up with you in 2022 and where can people find you if they want to learn more? Yeah. So I am most active on Instagram. So you can find me at financially thriving or financially thriving.com, which is my website. I actually also have a separate website where I document my fire journey. But since I really been focused on growing the money coaching business, I've left blogging for a while. So I want to go back to that because I think, especially as some, as I get closer to leaving the corporate world, there's some, a lot of emotions there and a lot of some reflecting that I've been doing that I think is important. I I've been searching for the material on it and I haven't found it. So I think that might be a good area to delve into. So that is what's up in 2022. And Gwen, what is going on with you this year and how can we find you? You know, that's a great question. And I don't know if I know the answer of what 2022 is going to look like yet. It's a period of change for me. I'm moving this weekend, actually. So by the time this airs, I'll have moved to a new place. Just kind of free to do whatever I want within, you know, bounds of COVID and whatnot. So I don't think that I know what I want to do because my plans have completely changed over the last six weeks or so. So yeah, it'll be a fun period of figuring that out. I'm in talks to start a new podcast, which um, doing guest appearances on shows like yours really, you know, make me happy. And I, I do love podcasting and miss podcasting a bunch. So I'm pretty excited to get back in the chair behind the mic, maybe start a new podcast with with some some people that I know in the community. I think that's probably the the most concrete thing that I'm going to explore so far in 2022. But like Wally, I have a blog that I haven't necessarily been tending very well over the last couple of months or years because creative energy was a little hard to find. But my blog is Fiery Millennials. I will be making an effort to be more active on there. Now, Ken, <laughs> that I have been diagnosed with ADHD last year <laughs> and have been working on ways to manage that and harness power for good. So yeah, it'll be an interesting year and uh, I'm excited to share it with awesome people like every one of you. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. I'd like to thank Ken George, Gwen Mers, and Wally Miller for asking me anything on this very special episode today. That's a wrap. Have you been considering investing in real estate? If you have, the best place to go to learn about this asset class is the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. 
here Chad, aka the coach, talks about real estate and gives you all the tips and tricks. But not only that, but he has guests on real proof of concept about how to reach financial independence by mastering this tricky asset class. Check them out. Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. It is a must listen to if you think real estate is going to be part of your financial holdings. The easiest way to get there is to go to CoachCarson.com. Again, CoachCarson.com. Take a listen. You won't regret it. Awesome. Anything you guys want to ask that we didn't talk about after showtime? Anything that yeah. was big that we didn't get to? Definitely. Um, I know my one, uh, now you did answer a couple of the things, but my thing was like, I mean, you're lucky enough to be a high earner. I mean, you definitely hustled for it. But what does that kind of look like? Stocks, bonds, you said real estate. Uh, I know your brothers and you had mentioned about family business. Um, and then basically is podcasting a good way to make money like as much as a doctor would? (laughs) (laughs) No, podcasting is not a good way to make money first and foremost. Um, You really have to be a huge podcast to make money. Um, It can be done. Uh, Better to have a podcast and use it as a funnel to something else. Um, Right. Like a group, either like a lot of people turn that into a special private group, which you have to pay a monthly fee to be part of or a course or something like that. But podcasting itself, just the advertising isn't going to pay a lot. I, my current portfolio, we actually sold three of my four properties. So I only have one left, but my current portfolio is mostly stocks and bonds I still run a small medical business with my hospice work where I consult and I consult for a few other companies where I do some uh, business consulting. But otherwise, and my wife still works, I've been trying to convince her to to retire, but she has not been ready to do that. So we still have income streams, but ultimately we will live off our portfolio. And I expect that to be enough. And our portfolio is becoming less and less real estate and more stocks and bonds just because I want it to be as passive as humanly possible. I will say though that, um, you know, I have nothing wrong with making money. And since I like doing the hospice work and it pays me a little, like if you look at your safe withdrawal rate, right? And so you calculate 4% and you look at your net worth and you take that 4%. Hey, if I'm willing to work at something I like a few hours a week and let's say make 50 extra thousand dollars a year, I can pretty much use that $50,000 to do whatever I want. I can take the most elaborate vacation I want. I can pamper myself. I can spend frivolously. So I don't mind doing a little bit of work, especially if I can find things that I only really enjoy doing. Um, and then use that money to be excessive. Like the idea behind money is to spend it. Like we forget that I think, especially (laughs) in the fire world. Um, and I don't necessarily prescribe to the die with zero philosophy that we should be down to zero when we die. Uh, But I do feel like we should spend frivolously when we have the money. Like there's no reason to have money in the bank that's doing nothing for you. It's either making more money to free you from something else or you should be using it to have fun. And I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. So like the you're you're doing extra stuff to make the 50 grand extra a year. 50 grand is what I live on a year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's different. I live. I mean, people don't realize this. So I grew up where we just always spent more than most of the people in the fire movement. And I also live Mm -hmm. in a location where 
it is not uncommon. Like just something simple. My property taxes on my house are $15,000 a year. Like, so immediately already you're talking about just the cost of doing business in this area is higher. And I grew up spending more. So if people saw my budget, I think in the fire community, their eyes would pop because we spend a lot more money than most people talk about on their blogs, et cetera. Um, but A, I mean, we worked in very high income fields. Um, mm. And then also now I work extra so that I can spend even more without worrying about it. So to and me, that's kind of the ultimate luxury. I think when I look at it in general, you know, we're here to live a good life and enjoy it. I mean, we do some frivolous things. Like I have a couple bottles of expensive wines and bourbons and stuff yeah. that we like to enjoy. You know, we go out for fancy meals and uh, I mean, we do enjoy some of the stuff. So it's even being lower income compared to most people, we still find ways to enjoy life. And I think that's one of the big things with the fire community that a lot of people are missing. They, they really sacrifice a lot of things but it's not really sacrificing. It's more along the lines of um, prioritizing. And I think that that's one big thing that we all skip over. So like what I prioritize might be going out and getting a a big juicy burger, (laughs) you know, and, and you might be going for the dumplings, but um, you know, I, I think that's one thing eventually that we should cover with the fire community. I don't know if you have anything in the works of that, but more of the prioritizing what's important to us compared yeah. to that, the, that's what the sacrificing. Yeah. That's what the book's about. I mean, pretty much the book is, is about how dealing with death and dying has taught me about personal finance. And a big part of that is actually prioritizing what role money plays in your life. Um, Amazing. And the idea really is it is an enabler of living your best life, living up to your purpose, identity and connections. It is not your purpose. And so I think we, I think one thing we have to really get clear about is, you know, money should be something that you deal with on the side while you're living your life. It shouldn't be what you spend all your time thinking about. Yeah, I think the uh, the Die With Zero book really like was a good mind shift for me because it took me a little bit out of that like hoarding accumulation yeah. mindset and got me a little bit more into, okay, well you know, what do I want my life to look like and how can money facilitate that? Which is kind of why I've, I've, you know, scaled back on saving a whole bunch and am living more, you know, more enjoyable for today. Like I remember when I first started working, I was making a really good salary for my location in the U S it was low cost of living. And I was earning about triple uh, what my average zip code was. So as a single person, that was, that was pretty good. And I remember talking to my coworker about cars and he was a, he's a big Subaru guy. You know, he had the Subaru STX that he bought new and he wrote driving gloves when he drove, like he was very serious about cars. And so he was like, you earn that much money and you still drive that old car. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, it's not a priority for me. You know, I'm going to drive it until the wheels fell off, which I did. And then I put new wheels on and drove it until, you know, <laughs> the engine seized up. So when it came time to get a new car, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to go with the cheapest, most basic, you know, clunker that I can find. I'm going to go for a car that, you know, I actually like driving and don't mind spending time in. And even though that required me to get a small loan, which I'll have paid off early, 
you know, it's been worth it because I really do enjoy driving the car and it's not just, you know, a thing to get me from point A to point B anymore. It's an experience that I enjoy now. So I think adding more of those things that you do into your life is really, really important. Yeah. People don't realize like we're really quick to criticize the mindless spending, but a lot of us never criticize the mindless saving, right? So how many people go out there and buy a clunker when they actually would enjoy a nice car? Like it's just, everything's a balance and you can go in the wrong direction, both ways. And sometimes we do do mindless saving. And, um, you know, my dad died at 40, like, and, and admittedly, my dad also didn't save a lot of money. He kind of knew he was going to die. He told my mom when he married her, he's like, I think I'm going to die young. So he spent a lot of time doing things he liked. Like he learned different languages. He had a workshop in the basement and did all sorts of like woodworking. I mean, he had all these paths. He loved photography. You know, it was very appropriate, actually. He left us life insurance. But, you know, more importantly, I think he realized he wasn't going to live for long. So he kind of enjoyed the day. If you feel like you're not going to live long or if, if dying young is a big fear of yours, I really think you should spend money. Like you can still have a financial independence plan, uh, but it doesn't have to be aggressive as someone who who's more worried about living long and running out of money. Those people need a much more ext- expansive financial plan so they can retire early and all that. But you know, if you're the kind who's worried that you're not going to have enough time on this earth, you should really spend your money now and enjoy it. Um, again, you can still be careful and save some money and build a financial independence plan. But let's say you don't die, right? Let's say you're like, I'm going to live for today. I'm going to spend my money. I'm going to YOLO and I'm going to only save 10%, right? And then let's say you make it to 40, 45 and you're like, well, I thought I was going to die young. I didn't. I'm going to have to keep working. But guess what? You've been enjoying life for the last 20 years. You can keep working and enjoying life the way you are. Just keep on saving your 10%. That's a pretty fantastic life too. I intend to live forever. So far, so good. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Well, that's the other thing about the ADHD. So it's like, we see both sides. So Gwen, you probably see it too then. You know, like, oh, I, I see this big balance going up in my investments and I have more money than my parents ever had. But then you're like, oh, wait. I got shiny syndrome, you know, like let's go chase down the new car, which I do have a new car, but I do also have an old truck that I just barely made back home with from Cincinnati <laughs> loaded down with all the Amsoil stuff from my last show. So it's kind of like check engine lights blinking and stuff. While I'm driving home. I'm like, Oh no, what I do. Mm-hmm. So I see both sides of it too. And that's, I think the hardest part. And I mean, Gwen, you can probably relate to that now, but Yeah. And I came rather late into my diagnosis. So I didn't realize that a lot of uh, what I did was because of my undiagnosed ADHD, which has been really fun to figure out as a 30, you know, something year old. Um, But I think what really helped was I hyper-focused on early retirement. And, you know, I got that dopamine rush from the numbers going up in my spreadsheet each month, figuring out how to hack things, optimizing you know, like I think instead, cause you see people all the time, they're like, Oh, I missed my bill payment. I just, you know, forgot what day it was. And it's like, money has never been an issue with my ADHD because I focused on the money. Yeah. And so it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> but like, yeah, I, you know, hobbies, you know, it's like, Oh, I have like all these hobbies that I want to do. And I go out and buy all that stuff. And I was like, well, I've got the stuff now time to move on to something else. Like, Oh no, <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> so it can't be a struggle for sure. 
Doctor, you had, you know, talking about hobbies, you have mentioned in the podcast before sort of your interest in art and how you kind of became an investor in art. And so I'm just kind of interested in what type of art you like. And also like when you're purchasing art, is it really to like enjoy it for a time (laughs) and then sell it off? Or like, what are some of the qualities that you look for when you're going into that space? So I, when I was younger, we were, we lived in St. Louis. I was in my residency and we bought a townhome and there was a local mall. Gwen, I don't think it's still around or maybe it is still around called the Galleria. Oh yeah. Still around. Yeah. yeah. So they had a fine art store there, right? They had a gallery and, you know, I saw just a bunch of artists that I just thought were amazing. These colorful figurative artwork and the problem with it is that, um, you know, these paintings were $1,500, $2,000. And I didn't want to pay that much. So I started searching through eBay and I started finding people who were selling the same exact artwork for half price. And so I started calling those people and I became friends with them. And I eventually got my way into the secondary art market. There are these big buyers who buy en masse huge amounts of artwork from the publishers, especially the publishers after they sell the first. of any new creation from the artists, they have about 50% left over. They let it go for cheap in massive quantities to these big buyers. And these big buyers then trickle it into the secondary art art market for a lot less. So I was able to buy in with some of these big buyers. I I siphoned off. I didn't put the big money up, but I bought directly from them. Um, The sad part about that is after so much artwork went through my hands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of these paintings it lost some of the excitement. So what I loved before became just paper to me, which was sad. Um, But I still have quite a bit of artwork in my house. Most of it, there are a few Iranian artists we really like. Um, A guy named Hassam. I love his figurative artwork. We have a few of his pieces. Um, There there are just a few different artists here and there. And there's a, a an Asian artist named Long Louis Lee who has these beautiful figuratives. And we have a few of his originals. Um, there's an Iranian artist named Issa Shojai. And we have a few of his, like over the years, either through my connections or finding them on eBay, we found some pretty good deals on a bunch of artwork. So we just have, we have artwork all around our house. We have so much that we have some of it just like leaning on our floors, et cetera. It's all left over from my old business. Um, but I still enjoy it. Yeah. I, you can see it behind me. That that's actually a piece that we bought. That's just a print that we bought while we lived in St. Louis. Um, so I still do love the artwork. Like I still walk into a room and look at it and then still, it still captures my attention. I think it's really cool. So, so I, I still enjoy it. I don't buy as much anymore. We just don't have much, enough space. <laughs> Our house is not big enough. We don't have enough walls for all this artwork. So that's Anything. what it's like with the car shows. All the cars there, they're like they're automotive art. You know, these things are millions of dollars tied up in them. You wouldn't even think about it. And it's just like you see people build this stuff with their hands and and the paint to the the way that the metal flows, the engines that they build. It is really cool seeing that stuff. So that's putting it all together. Like that's the art that I like. Everybody likes their different art. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I like the 3D stuff, the shiny, you know, the matte black, you know, all that stuff. So I think we're all into into something that is eye catching and and fun for us. It's true. I'm a sucker for a beautiful quilt. 
as evidenced by my background. (laughs) (laughs) And so the point is, I think it's fine to spend on those things. Um, And a lot of us would say, you know, we'll work an extra few hours to do that or, or we'll stay at the job an extra half a year, year, because you know what, I kind of like the job. It kind of gives me a schedule and gives me a place to go and, and makes me sure that I never have to worry about my finances because I have that little bit of income coming out. So to me, that stuff's worth it. All right. Well, thank you guys for doing this. I think this is going to come out great. I will edit it up. I will send you a copy uh, when it's ready so you can take a listen. Uh, Okay. But I think it'll go live in the next few weeks, within the next three or four for sure. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.